Jesus said, see, your house, your house is left to you. And I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, Would you all please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. On Friday afternoon, a man parked his car in front of a mosque in Christchurch, New Zealand. He calmly walked into the building while the community was down on the floor, kneeling in the midst of prayer, and he pulled out a gun. However, before he was able to fire his first shot, uh, his would-be first victim looked across the room and said, Hello, brother. By the time the extraordinarily unprecedented acts of violence came to an end, 49 people were dead on the floor. Another 48 were in the hospital being treated for injuries, some of whom were very young children. 49 people dead on the ground in the mosque. 48 people in the hospital. New Zealand's police commissioner spoke on television that night in the evening news conference to share with the country the horrific news of what had happened. And he urged everyone to avoid mosques at all costs, and he encouraged all mosques in New Zealand to close their doors until they heard back from the police. What a horrible, horrible thing. Absolutely horrible. The reverberations of such were felt all across the world as mosques, even here in the U.S., had to have extra security for their Friday and weekend services. And what makes it worse is that many of them already have to have security for their worship services in the first place. Can you imagine at all what it would be like if we were told this place, our house of worship, was off limits because of violence? Can you imagine How it would feel in the pits of our stomach if we were told to avoid churches because they were no longer safe. And we already do know what that's like. We don't have to imagine. Whether it's a church or a synagogue or a mosque, we know what violence can do to places of worship. Charleston, Pittsburgh, Sutherland Springs. That's just places here in the U.S. in the last few years. And here we are in worship. The second Sunday of Lent. A season of repentance, of introspection. And in Scripture, we confront the tones of abject disappointment from the Messiah as the cross gets sharper and sharper on the horizon. Jesus, here in this text that Michael read for us, Jesus, it seems, has grown frustrated with God's people and their refusal to hear and heed the summons to come home. Jesus, it seems, doesn't have much time for the ruler of God's people because he has better things to do. Jesus, it seems, sees few alternatives left other than the one that we adorn our sanctuaries with. Are we at all surprised that as Jesus' ministry progresses, his frustrations increase just as the obstacles standing in his way increase? I mean, the political and the religious establishments, they are threatened by this poor rabbi and his message of a new kingdom. They know what it means to be in the places of prestige and power. And then this wandering Jew shows up with his ragtag group of followers with talk about how the meek shall inherit the earth, how the first will be last. Which makes this passage all the more strange. It's rather particularly peculiar that the protective warnings comes from the Pharisees, 
who up to this point in the gospel have been anything but concerned for Jesus' well-being. Hey, you need to get out of here. Herod's going to kill you if you keep talking like this. Are they really worried about him? Are these Pharisees really worried that Jesus is going to get hurt or killed? Or is this all part of their idea to eventually get him removed or killed? Scripture doesn't answer those questions. But it is clear that Jesus is determined, in spite of their warnings, to reach his goal. No cunning fox, no city of rebellion will keep Jesus from doing what he must do. In fact, those two, the city and the leader, will ultimately be responsible for Jesus paying the ultimate price in the ultimate place. During Lent, the scriptures appointed for us, they compel us to keep our eyes on the cross. Just as the city of Jerusalem is now on Jesus' radar, Jerusalem is the end of his marathon ministry, and it is for us too. We cannot ignore where we are going. Jesus cannot ignore where he is going. And yet, he loves Jerusalem. It is a strange love. He compares it to the love that a mother hen has for all of her chicks, that she wants to keep them as close as possible. And yet, Jerusalem has responded to God's love with nothing but rebellion, selfish ambition, and with violence. Jesus, inexplicably, holds these two incompatible things together. He loves a city that does not love him back. He loves Jerusalem. But in the end, his love for her will be the death of him. And though it's hard to admit, the same holds true for us. It's Jesus' love for us in the midst of our rebellion is such that it eventually leads to his cross. Jesus is on an unstoppable journey toward Jerusalem and all that it holds for him. Which, of course, means that Jesus is on an unstoppable journey toward us, the very people who still insist on going and following our own way instead of following Jesus as the way. One of the most difficult things to reckon with in the gospel accounts is how much the ministry of Jesus transcends all of our understandings of what is right and what is wrong, what is first and what is last, what is good and what is bad. It cuts straight through the margins that exist in our world, and create something new. Something so very new that we're still afraid of it. Even 2,000 years later. Throughout Luke's gospel, Jesus is unwavering. He is persistent in his desire to bring in those who were once cast off, to raise up those who were once beaten down, and to gather near all who were once lost. Which ostensibly sounds like good news. And yet, it's as if we haven't heard it. Or at the very least, we act like it isn't true. The kingdom of God is always bigger than we imagine. Or to put it another way, the scope of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection are always larger than we limit them to be. But throughout history and even today, the longer we make the table, the bigger we make the door, the more upset we become. It's fine and good for Jesus to die for me, but he didn't die for you, you person who gets under my skin, you person who angers me all the time. I know that Jesus died for me, but he didn't die for you. The man who marched into the mosques on Friday, the one who left behind him a trail of blood and death and devastation, he did so with white supremacist slogans painted on the side of his weapons. 
He had a camera attached to his head and live streamed it on Facebook for people to watch all across the world why he did it. He published a manifesto about how it's not the meek that shall inherit the earth, but it's white people that shall inherit the earth. For whatever reason, he could not imagine a world in which the people he killed had any worth or any value. The same holds true for just about all of the expressions of religious violence that have taken place in the history of the world. Whether it was the young man who walked into Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, to the Crusades, to the massacre of six million Jews, to just about anything we can remember or think about, they boil down to the fact that some people cannot stand being with other people. Some people cannot stand being with other people. You know, there was another story that was reported following the attacks at the mosques in New Zealand on Friday that received very little coverage. You know, while the news outlets were entering again into the foray of gun control debates and whether or not political leaders would denounce white nationalism, the entire Jewish population of New Zealand agreed to close their doors for Sabbath observance yesterday. Not out of fear, not out of the expectation that violence would become them, but simply to be in solidarity with their Muslim brothers and sisters who were told not to go to their synagogues. I mean, just think about that for a moment. An entire religious institution agreed that rather than doing what they wanted, rather than continuing the status quo, rather than pretending nothing happened, they chose to be in solidarity with those who were marginalized and those who were attacked. An entire religious organization said, we are going to close our doors. We are not going to gather because they cannot gather either. Meanwhile, these two groups, Jews and Muslims, have absolutely nothing to do with each other in just about every other part of the world. They are almost always at the forefront of violence and anger and vitriol, but not this week and not in New Zealand. I mean, the violence that was perpetrated was absolutely unprecedented, but so too was the response of Jews in New Zealand. They said, we would rather be with you and for you than do what we want to do. In many ways, that's what the work of Christ is supposed to look like. It's beyond our ability to imagine. It is beyond our ability to even comprehend. It is a willingness to be with and before the very people who rest at the root of our frustrations. It is a witness to a faithful belief that when we say all, when we say that Christ died for all, we really mean all. Or to use the words of another preacher, no one is an island, entire of itself. Each is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. Each person's death diminishes me, for I am involved in humankind. Therefore, send not to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. And yet, how many days will it take before we forget about what happened because we're distracted by the next tragedy? How long will we continue to keep certain people far off while only gathering near the people we like? There is something deeply profound and deeply troubling in this thing we have in our sanctuary. There is something deeply profound and deeply troubling about the cross because it is, of course, a marker for us of our own delivery from slavery to sin and death, but in it we also discover our mutual rebellion from the one who came to live and die and live again for us. 
That hill we call Golgotha is a leveling place. Because until that moment, as Jesus says, the house was left to us. And even on our better days, we can admit that when the house is left to us, we like to choose who is able to join us in the house. We like to create our own rules about who is first and who is last and who is right and who is wrong, who is included, who is excluded. But so long as the house is left to us, it will never look like the kingdom of God. Instead, it will be a place, to use Jesus' words, that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. It will be a place where every attempt at making the table longer and the door larger results in more anger and more vitriol and more violence. It will be a place of our own making. And therefore, it will be a place of our own doom. God in Christ desperately desired to gather us all in like a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And again and again, we were unwilling to do so. Whether it was because we had the voice that excluded others or we ourselves felt the wrath of being excluded. We did not enter into the embrace of the mother hen. And so what does Jesus say? I leave this house to you. But not forever. I leave this house unto you until that day when you sing the words, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Those are the words sung by the crowds, waving their palm branches as Jesus enters into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. They're the same words that we're all going to be singing in a few weeks. Jesus does not abandon us to our own devices, Jesus does not abandon us to our own houses. Instead, he arrives in the strangest of ways, and he triumphantly declares for all to hear, this is not your house. This is my Father's house. So blessed is Jesus who comes in the name of the Lord, precisely because he is so unlike me and so unlike you. He continues to work to gather all of us in, even when we push him away. He still mounts the hardwood of the cross, knowing that we will choose the wrong thing and we will avoid doing the right thing. He still breaks forth from the tomb, even though we think this house belongs to us. During Lent, it is good and it is right for us to confront the frightening reality of our reality. Whether it's happening in New Zealand or in our own backyards, this world is full of people, people like you and me who simply cannot fathom the other being our brother or the stranger being our sister. But in a moment, we're going to sing some very important words from a very important hymn. The cross is free for all. From it flows a healing stream for all. And all means all, whether we like it or not. Whether we like it or not. So we offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.